You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today I'm overjoyed to welcome back one of our you know, great friends and one of the great experts in the field of ovarian cancer, Dr. Marja Crispins. So Dr. Crispins is professor and director of gynecologic oncology at Vanderbilt Cancer Center. As Overcome's advisory board member and one of the top global experts in the field of ovarian cancer, Dr. Crispins is passionate about serving all our overcomers. And as our patients say, Dr. Crispins represents compassion at its finest. So we have a lot to chat with, with her today as we welcome 2024 with hope on the horizon for ovarian cancer. And so grab your coffee or your favorite beverage. I have mine and let's connect over coffee with Dr. Crispins. There she goes. Uh, and uh, if you haven't noticed, she's She's wearing one of our over shine necklaces and she's shining as always, like the star, like she needed the necklace, but she shines anyways. But oh. thank you, Dr. Crispins, um, for that. And so um, with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Crispins, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. As always, a tremendous honor and pleasure for us to welcome you each time. Well, thank you so much, Yonsei. It's good to see you again. Good to be here. And, and that was such a kind introduction. I really appreciate it. And always glad to have a chance to, to talk to, to our patients and our survivors and, and hopefully help um, you know, people gain some additional knowledge. Thank you. So um, several questions, as I always do, but um, you know, just in getting, getting us started, um, I was just thinking about this, that we often hear terms like ovarian, fallopian tube, peritoneal cancers, right? Um, but can you please tell us about each of these cancer types uh, a little bit and their distinct differences and why they're all considered ovarian cancer? Uh, well, thank you for that question. And, and actually, that's a hugely complicated question. So first we have to talk about what do we mean when we say ovarian cancer? Because I think when you say that word, most people have a picture in their mind of what really turns out to probably be high-grade serous carcinoma, right? But when we think about ovary cancer, first we have to acknowledge that the ovary has three kinds of cells in it, all of which could become malignant at some point. So germ cell tumors, which are typically tumors that occur in children, adolescents, young adults, sex cord stromal tumors, which can come from the uh, structure of the ovary, pretty rare, but we do see them. And then the epithelial ovarian cancers, um, which are the ones that we mostly think about. But even when we think about that, if we take that subgroup, we have to divide that into further subgroups. So we have high-grade serous carcinoma, which constitutes about 70% of the epithelial tumors. And again, that's that disease that it presents in advanced stage, disseminated in the um, abdominal cavity that we think of when, I think most people think of, doctors included, when we think of ovary cancer, right? But there are other subtypes. So there's another subtype called low-grade serous carcinoma that we used to think that was 
kind of related to high-grade serous carcinoma, we now understand that molecularly, these are completely different um, diseases and require completely different therapies. And I may touch on that in a little bit. Um, there's a mucinous carcinomas, many of which may even arise from the GI tract. There are clear cell and endometrioid carcinomas that often probably largely arise from endometriosis. So even across ovary cancer, there's a huge breadth of disease. When we talk about the equivalency of uh, ovarian cancer, tubal cancer, and peritoneal cancer, we're again, mostly talking about high-grade serous carcinoma. Mm -hmm. Really hard to understand where these cancers come from because of course, everything is hidden in the abdominal cavity where we really can't follow it over time. Mm -hmm. But when we began to identify that the BRCA genes were associated with an increased risk of um, ovary cancers, um, people started looking in the ovaries and in the um, initially in the ovaries of people who had risk-reducing surgeries for um, for having a BRCA mutation. Mm -hmm. And no one was finding a precursor lesion. No one was finding anything that looked pre-malignant. And then this group decided to look in the fallopian tube. And this group discovered that in the fallopian tube were these pre-malignant looking lesions that we now call stick or serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma, right? And so then the idea arose that perhaps most ovary cancers were really fallopian tube cancers. And if we go back, I'm not super old, but if we go back to when I was a resident, fallopian tube cancer didn't even exist. Like right. it was there, but there were these very strict criteria and no one really had it. Everybody had ovary cancer and then kind of the pendulum swung and everybody had fallopian tube cancer. Yeah. Now I think there's been sort of a, a coming back to the center of there probably are high-grade serous carcinomas that arise truly from the ovary. There probably are high-grade serous carcinomas that arise truly from the fallopian tube. And then there are those that arise truly from the peritoneal cavity. Um, and they are all defined by their molecular signature. And that's why we say they're the same tumor because they carry the same mutations and particularly that mutation of P53, mm -hmm. right? The guardian of the genome. And so it's those tumors that have those P53 mutations that we're really talking about when we talk about high-grade serous carcinomas. And because they all carry these same mutations, they have the same susceptibility to treatment. Mm -hmm. And so we can lump them together because they look the same under the microscope. If you didn't tell a pathologist where yeah. it was coming from, they wouldn't know. They um, behave the same way over their natural history and they respond the same way to treatment. And so that's why we lump them together, but yet isolate out these other types of ovary cancer like low-grade serous carcinoma, which is molecularly very different and therefore responds to treatment very differently. Such a fabulous response. Thank you so very much for breaking it down for us. Appreciate it. So mo uh, moving to my next question, in terms of the most exciting advances in ovarian cancer um, that happened in 2023, um, Tell us a little more about them and what should our overcomers know about their promise in advancing treatment for ovarian cancer? Uh, that's why I said I would be talking about low-grade serous carcinoma some more because it's a, it's a disease for which we don't really have great therapy. So we use standard taxol carbo like we always have for ovary cancer. We know that low-grade serous carcinomas don't necessarily respond super well to it, but it's what we have. 
we have learned that perhaps these tumors um, may uh, respond to hormonal treatments. So sometimes women will get treatments with things like letrozole. Um, and then more recently, because again, of the molecular pathways being different, um, there are some targeted agents, the MEK inhibitors like trametinib that we can use in those cancers. Um, but a really exciting advance has been um, the development that was presented at ASCO this year of, of a combination treatment uh, looking at a drug called, and I, I always, I have to look at this because I can't pronounce these words, Ronsi, okay? I'm... I am with you on that. <laughs> Thank goodness they, they tend to get, get uh, trade names that are more pronounceable. Avutometinib yeah. uh, plus defactinib. And why this is exciting is that avutometinib is sort of a novel MEK inhibitor that actually sort of binds MEK to RAS and is a better inhibitor of the MEK pathway, which is important in low-grade serous carcinoma. And then combining that with an inhibitor of another pathway that the cancers use to overcome the uh, first blockade. So, right, cancers develop resistance to treatment when they identify uh, that, that a pathway is blocked, they'll upregulate another pathway to get around that. Mm -hmm. So this takes, blocks the MEK pathway, but then blocks another pathway that's associated with resistance. And this is really one of the first big advances in low-grade serous carcinoma. And so, um, there was a, a phase two trial that was done trying to look at the optimal regimen um, and the updated uh, results from that trial, it's called the RAMP201 trial, showed that there was an overall response rate of to the combination regimen of 45%, which is huge. Yes. That is a huge number. And even in the, in the patients who didn't have the mutation that you would expect to make them sensitive, um, the response rate was was very high. So in a mutant, in the KRAS mutant population, it was 60%. And in the wild type, it was 29%. So for an overall of 45. But what that meant was, even if you didn't have that mutation, the patients were still, uh, could get benefit from this drug combination. So, and these were patients who had, had been, had three or four prior regimens, they had chemo, they'd had hormonal therapies. So many of them had had prior MEK inhibitors, so this was a really, really exciting trial. And these data are currently being um, evaluated in a confirmatory phase three trial mm -hmm. that hopefully will lead to FDA approval for these drugs for our patients with low-grade serous carcinoma, which would be really a fantastic um, opportunity for patients with that, uh, that form of ovary cancer. Absolutely. So I think another thing that I hear a lot about and that patients are really interested in um, is immunotherapy. Mm. And as you well know, immunotherapy has been very, very disappointing in ovary cancer. Even though we would think that it would be effective, it really just hasn't been. And so also presented at ASCO this year was the DUO-O trial, which was looking at comparing standard chemotherapy with taxol carboplatinum with bevacivimab, followed by bevacivimab maintenance, which was would have been sort of the standard of care regimen doing that plus um, a immunotherapy drug called dervolumab yeah. or doing that plus the immunotherapy drug dervolumab plus maintenance of laparib. And 
what was presented was preliminary results. Okay, and so we, we it's an interim analysis. It's not a final analysis. So we have to be very careful about that because we really need to understand better what the final results of this trial would be. But they did see um, some improvement in response, um, well, in uh, progression-free survival for patients who got the four, you know, the, the devolumab and the BEV and the chemotherapy and the elaparib as compared to standard of care. So for all comers, it was 19 versus 24 months uh, progression-free survival. Uh, for patients who had homologous recombination repair deficient tumors, again, people you would expect to respond to elaparib, it was 37 versus 23 months. So some interesting promising data that we really need to see longer term outcomes from, but for, for people who are you know hopeful for immunotherapy to find a niche in ovary cancer the way it has in other cancers, like particularly last year with all the data that came out about endometrial cancer, right? Yes. Um, maybe pointing away, okay? But that's, that's kind of not ready for prime time yet, but maybe pointing away. And then the last one that I'll just bring up was the Mirasol trial. So in November of 22, Mervituximab got um, expedited approval, sort of preliminary approval from the FDA for use in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And the Mirasol trial was the confirmatory trial, right? And so what Mirasol did was it took patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, physician's choice chemotherapy versus Mervituximab, and showed that, again, responses to the mervituximab were much higher. So a 42% overall response rate to mervituximab versus 16% for standard of care chemotherapy. Again, pointing to the fact that alahir, sorry, mervituximab, got to use the generic, uh, that mervituximab um, really does have really good activity in patients with platinum-resistant disease, a 35% response rate a 42% response rate in because in in, um, in Sarai it was 35% in in Mirasol it was 42%. A 35 or 40% response rate in a platinum resistant cancer is tremendously high. And as you could see, a lot better than standard chemotherapy. So really showing us the way in that. Only about 30% of patients with platinum-resistant ovary cancer will have a, a folate receptor alpha mutation and or uh, overexpression, excuse me. And it's only those patients that are um, will benefit from mervituximab. But for those patients, it really is um, a tremendous advance. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Crispins. Two follow-up questions. Uh, first, on the uh, the folate receptor alpha positive, uh, I'm sorry, negative patients. So those that are not uh, do do not. Uh, have that expression of gene um, is does this not work at all or does this work uh, minimally or suboptimally what do you what do you think so folate receptor alpha is an interesting story because people have been trying to manipulate the overexpression of folate receptor alpha by by ovarian cancer for a, a long time there have been many trials of many different drugs and even in patients that highly expressing tumors these drugs weren't successful so this has been a long story to get to this particular drug that finally works. Mm -hmm. um, for this particular drug, you have to have a 70% of cells have to be overexpressing. Mm -hmm. um, there are trials looking at drugs that may be effective in lower percentage overexpression. Right. And so those are trials um, 
that are promising for patients who perhaps have lesser degrees of overexpression. But the way that this drug works, so this is a, a unique um, a unique design. It's a it's some becoming more uh, common in oncology. It's called an antibody drug conjugate, right? And so there's an antibody to this particularly overexpressed receptor, in this case, the folate receptor alpha. The antibody binds to that. The antibody through a linker is hooked to a chemotherapy drug. In this case, it's an antitubulin drug. So basically think about it as a drug related to Taxol. It's not Taxol, but it does kind of the same thing. And because it's targeted to the cells that overexpress, binds to that, when it binds to the receptor, it gets taken into the cell. Yeah. Only when it gets into the cell does the linker get cleaved. When the linker is cleaved in the cell, the chemotherapy drug becomes active. So yes, it does require that the cell have the target because otherwise it won't be taken up. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And the other question that I had in mind while you were talking about the progression-free survival with and without the, the combination of the immunotherapy drugs that you mentioned right before that, I, I heard you say 19 months versus 24 months and the others, you say 23 months versus 37 months, right? Um, if I have those numbers right. So, um, you know, I was just wondering, 23 and 37 is significant. That is a, that is a significant jump. But for the 19 and the 24 months, given like there are three or four drug combinations that you talked about, talk to us about the toxicity of those drugs, you know, co combined and the extra five months or six months that it's showing to be a benefit. Like as doctors or healthcare providers, how do you talk to your patients about balancing, you know, the quality of life versus the toxicity. Yeah, that and and I've got to say, Runzi, that's a super perceptive question. Um, you know, what 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 we so as scientists, we get interested in statistical significance, right? Two numbers are statistically significantly different. All right. And I, for me, one of the best examples is honestly uh Niraparib in patients with homologous recombination repair proficient tumors, right? Mm -hmm. So the difference in progression-free survival for patients who take niraparib and who don't is three months yeah. for three years of therapy, okay? And, and I'm gonna speak to that maybe more than directly to this trial, just because that's, that's data that's you know very established, right? That, that's solid data, we know that data. And so when I counsel a patient about niraparib, so when, when we get to the end of treatment and I sit down and I talk to a patient about PARP inhibitor maintenance, right? So for a BRCA, a patient who has a BRCA1 mutation, well, that's really simple, right? I mean, a 50 plus month improvement, I mean, seven year overall survival data, right? I mean, that's really simple. HRD, so patient has other reasons to have homologous recombination repair deficiency in their tumor, still there's a significant advantage. But patients, when I talk to them about maintenance for, for an HRP tumor or homologous recombination repair proficient tumor, I do, I do have that honest conversation with them. Here are the side effects of this medicine. It causes fatigue and it causes nausea and it causes your platelets to go down. And you're gonna have to put up with that for three years 
and it's going to buy you three more months until the cancer comes back. Is that worth it to you? And the other piece that we're always hesitant to talk about, but we really need to be honest about is financial toxicity. Yes. Because when we look at how that realistically affects our patients, bankruptcy, um, you know, is real from people undergoing cancer treatments, these, the, that things that aren't paid for, or they end up with huge co-pays, you know, so sure, I don't want to talk about money when I talk about treatment, if particularly if I have something that's, you know, super going to help somebody, but you have to think about that too, when you talk about a very expensive drug, like an immunotherapy drug, like a PARP inhibitor, these aren't generic yet. Um, you know, again, three months for three years of treatment, those are all factors that a patient has to take into account. I will tell you, you know, I'm not enthusiastic about a drug that buys someone three months for three years of therapy. I'm just not. Yeah. And that's why I say when we talk about this trial, I, I talk about this trial because it's a trial I hear about a lot. Patients have a lot of questions about it. Oh, I hear immunotherapy works, right? We finally found the immunotherapy that works. And I think you bring up a good point of, you know, is the immunotherapy really working? And you know, the fact that the the survivals are so much, or the progression-free survival is so much better in the laparib arm. There's not an arm with a laparib only. It was the same problem Paula had, right? That looked at bevacivimab plus a laparib versus bevacivimab. There's not a PARP inhibitor only arm. Mm -hmm. And so how much of that benefit, because it's mostly being accrued in the, in the homologous recombination repair deficient population, how much of that benefit is really just from the Olaparib and not from the Devolumab? Right, exactly. I mean, thank you so very much uh, for breaking it down for us because when you were talking about this, I was just thinking that there are other considerations you know, to be made when we make decisions as patients or family members. So I was just uh, curious about how to strike that balance uh, between quality of life and you know, the statistical significance as you talked about. So, um, you know, just talking about um, multiple recurrences in ovarian cancer, right? Uh, so, so we have so many survivors and overcomers that we talk to that have multiple, that not just once, twice, thrice, five times, seven times, they have, you know, their cancers have come back. So, um, so each time when the cancer returns, is there a treatment? Is there a, uh, change in the treatment plan or medications or surgeries, or, or just tell us, walk us through how you um, walk this path with the patient with multiple recurrences. Yeah. So, and, and this is one of those very challenging things. And one of those things that's very personalized, right? Because everybody's recurrence looks different. Right. Every, you know, upfront, it's pretty simple, right? I can sit, I can sit and, and say to a woman who presents with advanced high grade serous carcinoma, you need chemotherapy, you need surgery. We have to do both things. Both things have to work, right? We know when to give maintenance, or at least, you know, we, we, we test for BRCA, that maintenance work, right? So we, we have some very clear rules. One of the other things about sort of many, many drugs in a single episode is, are we getting the best advantage out of all of those drugs or how do we sequence things? So sequencing is a huge question that I think nobody has an answer for, mm -hmm. uh, not a definitive answer for, you know, what is the best sequence of drugs? Mm 
So certainly, I think we're mostly familiar with the idea that um, recurrences can be platinum sensitive or platinum resistant, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone, if someone, or refractory, right? So if somebody progresses on platinum-based therapy, that's called platinum refractory, obviously. That's a cancer that has an underlying resistance just to start with. Unfortunately, someone who has a platinum refractory cancer is unlikely to to respond to to anything subsequently. It's just a it's a marker of of of, of an, a very aggressive cancer. It's about twenty five percent of patients when they present. If a patient achieves remission and recurs within the first six months, that's what we call platinum resistant. That is, you know, if we rechallenged with platinum, they're really unlikely to respond. So we need to move to a non-platinum-based therapy. And then if it's six to 12 months, that's sort of um, moderately platinum-sensitive, and then beyond 12 is very platinum-sensitive, right? And so for someone six months and beyond, because platinum is our best drug, we're typically going to go back with a platinum-based regimen again. Yeah. Often not with Taxol. You want to give us different agent. And sometimes Taxol, uh, you know, with the hair loss and the neuropathy may not be what a woman wants to see at a, at a recurrence, right? So maybe something like liposomal encapsulated doxorubicin or gemcitabine that doesn't have those side effects may be what we combine in a platinum-sensitive recurrence. Once we get to platinum resistance, then you have consideration for you know, a, a, a laundry list of non-platinum drugs that now includes things like mervituximab. Yes. I haven't even spoken about bevacivimab, right? Um, so bevacivimab will sometimes be used in the upfront setting, all right? So for example, someone with stage four disease with a big pleural effusion, or you know, if it's not operable, people may use bevacivimab upfront. If you haven't used bevacivimab up front, then there are studies that demonstrate that combining it with chemotherapy is better than chemotherapy alone, both in the platinum sensitive and the platinum resistant setting. Because we don't have a lot that works in the platinum resistant setting, I will say that I personally kind of reserve bevacivimab for the platinum resistant setting because it does work in, in platinum resistant patients. So I sort of hold that in advance, but that's my personal sequencing, right? There's not a a rule book that says that this is how we sequence things. Mm -hmm. um, for it, in my in my patient population, if um, someone did not receive a PARP inhibitor maintenance up front, I might consider it after a platinum sensitive recurrence. I might talk to a patient about that. Um, and then there's the question of reoperating. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's some conflicting data about reoperating. So, you know, Dr. Coleman's trial that suggested that people who had reoperation actually, so they recur and they get a secondary cytoreduction actually did worse than people who were treated directly with chemotherapy. There's some other trials that suggest that's not the case. Yeah. I think I and my partners here think that reoperation is, is something that's, again, very personalized. And the things that we would think make someone a good candidate for that would be one, that we've got good chemotherapy to come back with, right? So strongly platinum-sensitive, highly platinum-sensitive, 12 months or more, okay? Because we know we have good chemotherapy to come back with. And truly an isolated recurrence that we know we can resect the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So mesentery of the sigmoid colon is not in commonplace, uh, but it's just there. It's not carcinomatosis. Mm -hmm. um, 
splenic recurrences, an isolated liver recurrence, something like that, where it's an isolated recurrence that you can truly completely resect and then come back with, with effective chemotherapy. Those would be the places that, that I would consider um, for a secondary site reduction. Thank you. And so as we are talking about multiple recurrences, you know, um, I wanted to talk to you about radiation, right? So it is not a standard of care for, I understand, um, for ovarian cancer, but I know a few overcomers with multiple recurrences that have been prescribed um, that radiation, you know, as a standard, well, not standard, as a as a way of care. Um, and so can you please tell us more about why radiation is used for these repeat recurrence treatments and usually not in the initial standard of care and what should our overcomers know about the positives and the toxicities involved in radiation when it comes to ovarian cancer? Pardon me? That is spam. <laughs> So anyway, uh, yeah, so it's almost like uh, I set you up for that and I didn't. Um, I happen to be um, a fairly big user, relatively speaking, of radiation and recurrent disease. And But again, it's this is a very personalized thing, right? So if you go back to the very pre-1950s, the early 1960s, women with ovary cancer were treated with whole abdominal radiotherapy because we didn't have chemo yet and that's what we had it's very toxic the liver has a very low tolerance for um radiation the kidneys have a very low tolerance those organs have to be shielded so we're already shielding a large portion of the abdomen and the small intestine has a very low tolerance for radiotherapy and so radiating the whole abdomen is hugely toxic and felix rutledge who was the first um, the first uh, chairman of Giovanni Oncology at MD Anderson was actually the individual who introduced the idea of giving chemotherapy um, in the 1960s. Um, and obviously that has grown exponentially since then. Yeah. And chemotherapy is, is much more effective than radiotherapy and it's less toxic. So at the initial presentation, we wouldn't think that there was an indication for radiotherapy for patients with advanced stage disease, right? Just it, we can't really do it effectively. It's not as good as chemo. But if you have someone who has what we call oligometastatic disease, so few sites, so isolated sites of recurrence, right? That may not be amenable to surgery or maybe the patient doesn't want surgery. Mm -hmm. um, then for, again, for example, I've had several patients who have had sort of isolated periodic nodal recurrences where it's one or two nodes in the periodic region and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's a, a person who might be a good candidate for radiation therapy just to that area. It can, that with stereotactic radiosurgery, they can really focus the radiation right on that area. They can minimize toxicity. And no, we're not talking about cure, but you can definitely prolong the time until the patient has to see systemic therapy again. And so it can be a really good um, option for people with certain sites of oligometastatic disease that's either not amenable to surgical treatment or the patient doesn't want surgical treatment. And so I absolutely use that radiotherapy in that way in my practice. 
That's wonderful to know. And you, you broke it down very nicely for us. So from what I understood, at initial presentation, uh, chemotherapy is the standard of care. We are not really offering or should not be offering uh, radiation therapy to those patients. But once those repeat recurrences happen, especially if it is in microsites in the body where they can be just locally treated in those situations, um, the radiotherapy can be very effective uh, while minimizing toxicity for the overcomer. Okay, all right, thank you. So you actually said in one of our events um, that cancer doctors are really good at taking care of cancer, and this is quote unquote, and they're <laughs> so good at taking care of the long-term side effects. So tell us more about managing side effects while overcoming ovarian cancer. And what is your guidance in managing the top, you know, the top side effects that you see in your patients? Yeah, no, and, and I've, I've been known to say that more than once. So my words always come back to haunt me. Um, yeah, and, and it's true. And I think some of it's because maybe we don't have great treatments, right? And I think that's Part of it is that we are very focused on cancer treatment. Part of it is probably because we don't have great interventions. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for ovary cancer patients, particularly, they have all seen taxanes, uh, particularly paclitaxel. And neuropathy, to me, is probably the number one thing that people continue to have even after their treatment is over, right? Pain, numbness, tingling, uh, perhaps even some functional deficits um, related to exposure to taxanes. And that can be really debilitating in the long term. The first thing I would say is to really be um, honest with your treat treating physician while you're getting therapy about how bad the neuropathy is. I think it's very common for people to minimize that because they don't want us to take their chemotherapy away. Right. They don't want to they they want to they want to be tough and they want to gut through it. And so they can get the best treatment. And I'm going to go back here and make this stop making this horrible noise. OK. OK, so first, be honest with your treating physician, because during therapy, we can do dose reductions if we really need to. I mean, I had a patient come in the other day who admitted she was dropping things. Okay, I mean, we're already to the point where there's a functional deficit. Yeah. We can change to docetaxel, we can change to abraxane, we, we do some things about it, okay? So don't be fearful that if you say that you're having this symptom that we won't be able to treat you. There's, there's alternatives, really good alternatives. So first would be like trying to work on that. Other things, I do recommend my patients take alpha-lipoic acid during their treatment to try to protect the nerves. Um, some people also recommend B6 and B12 mm -hmm. uh, during treatment to try to protect the nerves. Post-treatment, so I think, you know, when, when we know that people's neuropathy gets better, but it doesn't always go away, so what kind of things? So things that have been used effectively, and they don't work for everybody, but but they're worth trying. Acupuncture. Yes. I've had a number of patients have really good response to acupuncture, along a similar lines tens units, um, and I think it's sort of that similar idea of the counter irritant, mm -hmm. um, which is a really uh, important principle in in management of chronic pain. Certainly, talking to your doctor about pharmacologic things like 
um, gabapentinoids, so gabapentin, um, pregabalin, um, there's uh, Celexa can help with, with those chronic pain issues. So there are pharmacologic things that can be offered by your doctor. Um, physical therapy. Yes. Right? For strength, for mobility, physical therapy can be a really important thing. So again, to just be open with your doctor, you know, I, I know that sometimes patients are, there's this idea of being tough. There's also this idea of not wanting to disappoint your doctor, yeah. right? I'll make your doctor feel bad. <laughs> Tell me, because I will send you to physical therapy, but if I don't know, I can't do it, right? If I don't know you're having a deficit, then I can't intervene. Yeah. Um, and then, so I think that's a big one. Chemo brain's another one uh, that I think more patients deal with than really tell us. Um, there's not a lot of good pharmacologic treatment for that yet, but you know, keeping your brain active, exercising your brain, doing puzzles, um, using um, um, aids, so keeping lists um, so that you remember things, you know, keeping a calendar if you're not used to doing that, things that you can use to, to trigger um, that I need to do this or I need to remember that, um, I think are useful in that regard. Um, you know, having a little, one of those, what are those things, those little eye things that you put on your keys so you can find them? I need one of those for my remote. You know, the little thing that, that, that Apple makes, the Apple pod or whatever it is that you put hook on your keys and then you can like find it? Yeah. So there are technological uh, hacks, right, that you can use if you, you find that you're always forgetting where you put your keys. There are non-technological hacks, like every day when I go home, I put my keys in the same place, right? right? I Every day when I turn off the TV, I put the remote in the same place. I need that one. I can never find my remote. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of that. And then um, I think the other one is just fatigue. And we see that even a lot of that in patients who are on maintenance therapy, but, you know, people are off therapy completely, but also people are on maintenance therapy. Yeah. A lot of fatigue in patients who take PARP inhibitors. Mm. And so again, being upfront with your doctor, dose reductions if they're necessary, and then strategies. You know, we talk about managing energy. So know, kind of know yourself. When are you going to have a lot of energy in the day? If you have a big project, a big something to do, if you know that you're a morning person, plan to do that in the morning. If you know that you need a, a nap in the afternoon, that's okay. I think, but, you know, keep it to 30 minutes, right? That, that power nap that that re that revives you but doesn't like then make you sunk for the rest of the day right exercise hugely important to stay active to walk um is a wonderful exercise and that's good for everything that's good for neuropathy it's good for chemo brain it's good for fatigue that's right generally good. yeah yeah it's good for everything to get out and get some exercise and walk and i particularly encourage people to get outdoors because i think that outside the sun, the trees, right? That's just so therapeutic for everybody. So those are just some things that I would think about. Thank you, uh, Dr. Crispins. Two questions on uh, while you were talking, I was thinking you mentioned B6 and B12. So one of the things that triggered my thought that, you know, uh, the supplements are can be important while you're going through therapy, right? So, uh, I've, and I've read, 
immensely about the vitamin D and its um, implications, positive implications while you are going through, not just when you're going through therapy, but just in general. Um, and also the levels of vitamin D that should actually be between 60 and 80 versus the 30 and whatever is considered normal. So, um, and when it comes to the vitamin D or vitamin B and uh, six or 12, these are uh, generally easy tablets or drugs to take, right? So tell us a little more about their efficacy and what should our overcomers know in, in terms of, you know, supplementing with, with these. So we have to be a little careful about supplements, yeah. right? So um, there are some supplements that I would be super worried about. Yeah. Um, because uh, we don't know exactly how, for example, certain uh, homeopathic agents interact with chemotherapy, right? And and Taxol, for a great example, is a natural product, right? Derived initially from the bark of the Pacific U, yes. right? And so our livers are designed to um, detoxify, to remove toxic products from the natural world. And so we have this whole set of enzymes that can be revved up or revved down based on exposure. So some homeopathic agents, for example, if they're coming from the natural world. We don't know exactly how they interact with chemotherapy. If they rev up those liver enzymes, then maybe they increase the metabolism of the taxol, clear it more quickly, make it less effective. They suppress the same enzymes that clear taxol, then maybe the taxol sticks around longer and is more toxic. So we have to be a little careful there. We think about vitamins. The B vitamins are all water soluble. If you take too much, you just urinate it away. Right. So, right, I mean, we don't, not too worried about that. Vitamin C is an antioxidant. and get a lot of questions about high dose vitamin C. Just had one yesterday. Um, but the problem is that many chemotherapy drugs act through oxidation reactions. And so if we suppress oxidation reactions, we may actually make something like carboplatinum less effective because it's acting to damage the DNA through an oxidation reaction. Um, D, we have to be careful of. So D can be toxic if you have too much of it. But D is really important. And many people, because they aren't outside in the sunlight and they maybe aren't drinking a lot of milk products as an adult, are vitamin D deficient. So for bone health, for lots of health, for wound healing, for like everything, you need to have a normal vitamin D level. We actually check vitamin D levels um, in all our pre-op patients and prescribe vitamin D supplementation for our uh, patients who are uh, have low levels of vitamin D to try to get them into the normal range. I wouldn't go super therapeutic, but certainly normal range. And I'm going to go back to C for a minute now that I say that. Very interestingly, you wouldn't think this, but very interestingly, what we found, we checked vitamin C levels in all of our pre-op patients. There is a there is a fair number of people who are actually vitamin C deficient. Uh, they may not have clinical scurvy, but they are vitamin C deficient. Vitamin C is hugely important for wound healing. So we don't want people taking super therapeutic doses, yeah. but we don't want them to be vitamin C deficient either. Right. So, um, you know, making sure that you have um, normal levels of these vitamins is important to health. It's important to healing and healing is important for um, how we respond to surgery, but it's also, there's a healing process that happens in chemotherapy, right? Because 
normal cells, normal tissues get injured, you have to heal that every time that you see chemo. So having normal levels and having a body that's robust and able to respond, I think is really important. Would you would you generally prescribe um, like you know would you the standard what would be your standard dosage for vitamin D for example that you you think would be you know generally safe for for our overcomers or, or all of us for that matter like is it one thousand two thousand five thousand what is it well so I actually guide that by by levels so we get the vitamin D level and then I was just look it up I can't remember who needs there's you can be low enough that you actually need 50,000 units a week okay. for a while and then there's another level where you um need like more than 800 or 1000 units a day international units a day and I'll admit Runcy that now that we have these things I don't have to keep that in my head anymore <laughs> I pull it up on my yeah. I pull it up in uh, uh in my little chart yeah when I when I need to do it no, but that that's good to know for us as well that there is a chart and there's a way to uh, measure how much vitamin D we may need, and it's just not randomly just grab a bottle and start having it. So, okay, thank you. So, um, I have so many more questions. We need a part two with you, but <laughs> um, to, you know, I'm just going to talk to you about the. We also hear about you know cancer spreading and cancer recurring, right? So. What is the difference between cancer that spreads and the cancer that recurs? And what should our overcomers know about it? And how is one versus the other monitored and managed? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of overlap there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in general, cancer starts in a given organ, right? I'm gonna choose a different organ than the ovary because the ovary is a little more complicated. So let's let's just step to the uterus for just a second. And then I'll go back to the over and explain why I said it's more complicated. So you, cancer of the lining of the uterus, the endometrium, starts in the lining of the uterus, right? So anywhere that it goes past the lining of the uterus is spread, mm -hmm. right? So even if it invades the muscular wall, if it goes to the cervix, if it goes to the lymph nodes, if it goes to the abdominal cavity, anywhere that isn't the lining of the uterus is spread. We take the ovary, there are stage one ovarian cancers, the cancers that are truly confined to the ovary, right? That they are only in the ovary. There's a capsule. There's no um, tumor on the surface of the capsule. There's no cells floating around in the abdominal cavity, right? There are truly stage one ovary cancers that are confined to the ovary. So again, so that's stage one for all cancers would be confined to the primary organ where it started spread is anywhere else. So like if ovary cancer starts in the ovary, it goes to the fallopian tube, that's spread. Yeah. Uh, for ovary cancer, you know, we know that for high-grade serous carcinoma, 75% of patients are going to present with cancer that's already spread, probably because the ovary and the tube, and again, a lot of these cancers may be really starting in the tube, have this open they're exposed to the to the the peritoneal cavity, right? The peritoneal cavity is just sitting there and that like the end of the tube is just completely exposed. And so cells that are in the tube are probably just sloughing off into the cavity all the time, right? So that's how you get spread in the abdominal cavity. So that's kind of spread. Mm -hmm. And spread can be at the time of initial diagnosis or it can be later. But recurrence is when cancer that has apparently gone away, 
comes back. So what do we mean by remission and what do we mean by cure? Sort of the corollary question. So remission means that all the signs of the cancer that we can detect have gone away, right? So the CT is negative and the exam is negative and the CA125 is normal and you don't have any symptoms. And to the best we can tell, we can't find any evidence of cancer, okay? The problem with that is that there can be microscopic cells that are hanging around, okay? that are too small for us to detect, to detect. And if we want to talk about things on the horizon, um, so technologies like circulating tumor DNA may that, that look for fragments of the DNA from cancer cells may be able, maybe a, a technology that's on the horizon to, to be able to detect these more microscopic uh, areas. We know, for example, in colon cancer, they can use that to know who still has disease at the treat, end of treatment. Mm -hmm. How to integrate that into what you do about it is unclear, but but we know there are cancers in which we can, if we can still detect circulating tumor DNA, we know the cancer is going to come back. Yeah. So these the cells are hanging around, and if there are no cells hanging around, then you're going to be cured. And five years from now, there's going to be no evidence of the cancer, and we're going to say you're cured. But if there are cells hanging around and your body can't deal with them, that's two things. There are still cells hanging around that your body can't deal with then eventually those cells can grow back and that's recurrence. And when you talk about why does cancer come back, it's because even though we couldn't detect any evidence of it, there still was something there that was biding its time and waiting for whatever signal to grow back. And maybe that signal is some kind of growth signal. Maybe that signal is your immune system has been holding it in check and no longer can. Who knows what that signal is? But recurrence is the cancer comes back. Now that recurrent cancer sort of by definition is spread because if I've already taken out the ovaries, yeah. the tubes, right, all the primary organs, then when it comes back, it is spread from wherever it started. Yeah, so there is a little bit of ambiguity between the two terms because I was just thinking that, that you know, with the recurrence, the cancer coming back, if you have already taken away the ovaries and other organs or surrounding, then it is, it, it is, technically not coming back to the primary site because the, the site no longer exists. So it is spreading to some other organ. However, it is not a spread, it is, is a recurrence. So there's a little bit, like you said, a little bit of vagueness or uh, overlap between the two. So um, thank you for that clarification. So now, you know, um, I had this curious question about recurrence in ovarian cancer presenting with symptoms, right? So, um, so ovarian cancer can come back multiple times. So each time when the cancer is coming back, will our overcomers present with more or less the same symptoms or the symptoms are unique? Um, tell us more about uh, what our overcomers should be, should know of the uh, the particular unique symptoms for recurrence and what should they be vigilant of? Yeah, so my experience is that patients will often tell me when they have a recurrence that they're having the same symptoms they had when they were first diagnosed. That is a really common thing for patients to come in and say to me. Uh, maybe not common for them to come in and say to me, but a common way that patients express their symptoms. Yeah. That I feel exactly like I did when I was first diagnosed. Mm -hmm. I would say that with CA125 monitoring, 
A lot of times patients aren't symptomatic when we figure it out just because we're catching it so early, right? So they may not have a lot of disease yet to have become symptomatic from mm -hmm. if we're doing serial CA125 monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, now, certainly it can pop up in the window or sometimes tumors aren't CA125 positive, but, but often we're picking it up chemically before the patient is necessarily aware of symptoms or we'll also certainly have it have it happen that I tell someone their CA125 is elevated and then they say to me, well, yeah, I was starting to kind of feel like I did when I was first diagnosed. Yeah. Now, sometimes people will have different symptoms. So for example, if you know someone had a disease, dead disease that was primarily abdominal and they develop a pleural effusion, fluid around the lung, you know, so they may present now with cough or shortness of breath, yeah. which might be very different than what they had before. Or if they, for example, maybe have developed new liver metastasis or spleen metastasis, maybe they come in complaining of pain in, you know, the upper abdomen where they didn't have that before. Um, so certainly, you know, we would tell anyone with cancer, you know, new pain, particularly, and and I go back to to um, uh, Barbara Goff's rules, right? Pain and it, pain, bloating early satiety, you know, feeling full early when you eat, changes in bowel or bladder function, because if there's something sitting down on your bladder, right, that's going to really cause you some changes in, in urinary function, right? But new symptoms, new unusual symptoms, pain or swelling in just one leg, that can be a blood clot, that can be a symptom of maybe some nodes pushing on a, a blood vessel, or just a symptom of the cancer coming back. Yeah. You know, anything else that just seems very different to you, that lasts for two weeks or more. I really like that Barbara's two weeks or more because I think that's a good, it's a good safe bench post. Two weeks, probably nothing too bad can happen. But on the other hand, if it's not something bad, it's probably gonna go away by two weeks. Right, right. Thank you. Um, so we talked about immunotherapy a little bit and you also mentioned some of the uh, ongoing <clears throat> promising clinical trials. Um, that, but in general, you know, in terms of the clinical trials, we always encourage our overcomers to look up and sign up for those. So, if there were one or two or three, uh, you know, clinical trials ongoing that you would um, pick for our overcomers and suggest that they look up and sign up for, what would they be? Well, I mean, I don't know that I would. I, I guess I have a little different different approach to that, Ronse, and and so. What I would say is go to the closest comprehensive cancer center that you can, okay? Because um, again, we want to we want to think about. I I absolutely one hundred and twenty percent encourage people at all stages to consider participation in clinical trials. Yeah. There aren't a lot of good upfront trials right now. Although I will put in a, a plug for the hot trial, which will be starting soon, <laughs> uh, which I helped design. So, um, you know, looking looking again at the, the role of HIPEC, and that will be an upfront trial. Um, so I guess I'll put in a plug for that one. It's not open quite yet, but it will be soon. Um, but I think in terms of trials, one of the things that we forget is that it can be hugely burdensome for someone who lives uh, a long distance to go to go to MD Anderson and get 
the newest best trial, right? If you live in rural Tennessee, rural Kentucky, rural Alabama, rural whatever, um, that just may not be a reasonable thing to for you to be able to do. And I would love for you to be able to do that, right? That would be a great opportunity for everyone, but is that really reasonable? So not everyone is going to have access to every trial, right? And I don't want people to feel bad because well, I think this is the best trial, but I can't get to it. And for example, Anderson is doing some really interesting stuff with, and, and some other places as well, with how to, uh, with drugs that we're adding to PARP inhibitors to try to overcome resistance or to make them active in patients with homologous recombination repair proficient tumors, right? So some really interesting work being done in those areas. But if you can't get to the trial, you can't get to the trial. So I guess my advice would be a little different, which is if you can get to an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center, you're going to have access to a, a menu of trials that is going to be good, solid trials. They're, not every place is going to have everything. Yeah. Okay. And again, a place like Anderson may have some unique trials that they, because of their unique situation, or a place like Sloan, because of their unique situation, may have a unique menu of trials that, that they're not even being offered anywhere else. Phase one trials of really unique agents, right? Yeah. But if you can get to an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center, which may be more reasonable, because there are, you know, so we've got, you know, Vanderbilt and UAB and Duke and, you know, so people can maybe get to those places, talk to someone there, get a second opinion, look at their menu of trials and see if, if there's something there that is appropriate for you. And, and I approach clinical trials in the same way I approach all of treatment, which is that it needs to be personalized, right? We need to look at you know, your disease, we need to look at your, our therapies, we need to look at you, what, what symptom burden are you presenting with? And am I just going to make that symptom burden worse? Because this drug is known to cause that symptom, right? So I guess I would just be more personalized in that approach, and maybe try to get people to at least, at least go get the second opinion, because yeah. that's the first step. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Crispin. So switching gears a little bit, uh, we want to know who Dr. Crispin is outside of the lab coats. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, what is, how do you overcome your own challenges and what do you most resonate with when it comes to our overcomers? Well, uh, thank you, Runcie. I, I think outside of, uh, Outside of medicine, you know, I do two two things, which one is I hike and backpack. So I've already told you I love the woods and the yes. and I I think it's really very therapeutic. And even if you're you're not into backpacking, even if sleeping on the ground is not your thing, um getting out in the woods, I think is incredibly therapeutic for everybody. And then the other thing that I do is I'm a, a third degree black belt in Aikido. Um goodness. I think you mentioned that to me once. Yes, I do remember that. And I teach a little bit, but it, you know, it's a great way to, to take out some, uh, you know, frustration at the end of the day. Yes, right? <laughs> for sure. Yes. Thank you for sharing Dr. Crispin's outside of the lab code. So um, just, you know, um, if you could change the tomorrow for our overcomers or for ovarian cancer, what would you do? So, I mean, I think if I could change the tomorrow, it, I would I want us to see a day when we can detect this disease before people have to experience it. 
And, and that is not to be dismissive of, of people who are currently facing that challenge, because of course, if I could cure everyone today, I would, right? Um, but, but if we really could change the playing field, it would be to, um, it would be to have early detection so that no one has to ever go through this again. Thank you. That's such a beautiful answer. And also just, if you were an overcomer, what would be your top questions for your doctor or healthcare team that you would ask? These are rapid fire questions in the last five minutes. <laughs> Um, so the top question I would ask is, I, I would, I would ask, do I need a second opinion? I would ask, is there someone else I should talk to? Yeah. And no physician should be insulted by that. Yeah. I'm certainly not. I mean, I send plenty of people to Anderson and, and other places. You should ask. Absolutely. Thank you. So I have asked you a lot of questions, Dr. Brisbane's. What have I missed asking that you would like to share? Well, the one that I didn't get the answer in the rapid fire was, you know, what about what is what is inspiring to me about about our overcomers? Yes. And and I do want to answer that one, which is, you know, I walk into clinic every day and I I, I meet with these women who are struggling and suffering and yet they maintain their beauty and their grace and they their care for their families. And and, you know, there are so many of them are all about what happens to other people, not what's happening to them. They're worried about what's happening to their families, their children. They're honestly, some of them come in and they're worried about what's happening to me. And I'm just like, what? I mean, you have cancer. Don't be worried about me, <laughs> right? But there's this, this beautiful grace and acceptance and, and love of life and of of the people around them that emanates from them that that we all should should take um, an example from. Absolutely, and so that was a beautiful message, uh, Dr. Crispin. So, just in closing, what message of overcoming would you like to share with everyone that's listening? That you know, I see patients every day where you know we think we're at our last leg, and then something comes along. I just had a patient who. I mean, I had really nothing to offer in the platinum resistance setting. And then all of a sudden there was Ella here and her, her CA125 has, you know, halved and she's feeling better and she's able to spend time with her grandkids, which is what she really, really wants. And so there are, there is hope on the horizon there. There is more coming and, and just to, to try to, to keep the faith. Thank you so very much, Dr. Crispins. This was such a fabulous conversation. I, I enjoy my chats with you. I did not go through all my questions, so we have to bring you back for a part two. But thank you for also wearing that necklace and showing the spirit um, to all our overcomers. We appreciate you very much. And overcomers, hope this, uh, this episode was beneficial for you. It was a very wonderful chat we had with Dr. Crispins, filled with insights, but also with her own personal experience and compassion, which I'm sure you also uh, actually felt what, through the conversation we had. So um, please, please, as I always say, share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom and the insights Dr. Crispin shared with us today. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep inspiring, keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. And thank you, Runzi, for all that you do to support the community. Thank we, you. We, thank you enough. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. 
This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support.